0: Story Number Eighteen of Lucy Maud Montgomery Short Stories, Eighteen Ninety Six to Nineteen O One This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jadopi. Lucy Maud Montgomery Short Stories, Eighteen Ninety Six to Nineteen O One, by Lucy Maud Montgomery. THE WAKING OF HELEN Robert Reeves looked somewhat curious at the girl who was waiting on him at his solitary breakfast. He had not seen her before, arriving at his summer boarding-house only the preceding night. It was a shabby farmhouse on the inland shore of a large bay that was noted for its tides, and had wonderful possibilities of light and shade for an impressionist. Reeves was an enthusiastic artist, It mattered little to him that the boarding accommodations were most primitive, the people uncultured and dull, the place itself utterly isolated, as long as he could revel in those transcendent sunsets and sunrises, those marvellous moonlights, those wonderful purple shores and sweeps of shimmering blue water. The owner of the farm was Angus Fraser, and he and his wife seemed to be a reserved, uncouth pair, with no apparent interest in life, save to scratch a bare living out of their few stony acres. He had an impression that they were childless, and was at a loss to place this girl who poured his tea and brought in his toast. She did not resemble either Fraser or his wife. She was certainly not beautiful, being very tall and rather awkward, and dressed in a particularly unbecoming dark print wrapper. Her luxuriant hair was thick and black, and was coiled in a heavy knot at the nape of her neck. Her features were delicate, but irregular, and her skin was very brown. Her eyes attracted Reeves' notice especially. They were large and dark, and full of a half unconscious, wistful longing, as if a prisoned soul behind them were vainly trying to reveal itself. Reeves could find out nothing of her from herself, for she responded to his tentative questions about the place in the briefest fashion afterwards he interviewed mrs fraser cautiously and ascertained that the girl's name was helen fraser and that she was angus's niece her father and mother are dead and we've brought her up helen's a good girl in most ways a little obstinate and sulky now and then but generally she's steady enough and as for work there ain't a girl in bay beach can come up to her in house or field angus calculates she saves a man's wages clear "'No, I ain't got nothing to say against Helen.' Nevertheless, Reeves felt somehow that Mrs. Fraser did not like her husband's niece. He often heard her scolding or nagging Helen at her work, and noticed that the latter never answered back. But once, after Mrs. Angus's tongue had been especially bitter, he met the girl hurrying along the hall from the kitchen with her eyes full of tears. Reeves felt as if someone had struck him a blow, He went to Angus and his wife that afternoon. He wished to paint a shore picture, he said, and wanted a model. Would they allow Miss Fraser to pose for him? He would pay liberally for her time. Angus and his wife had no objection. They would pocket the money and Helen could be spared a spell every day as well as not. Reeves told Helen of his plan himself, meeting her in the evening as she was bringing the cows home from the low shore pastures beyond the marsh. He was surprised at the sudden illumination of her face. It almost transfigured her from a plain, sulky-looking girl into a beautiful woman. But the glow passed quickly. She assented to his plan quietly, almost lifelessly. He walked home with her behind the cows and talked of the sunset and the mysterious beauty of the bay, and the purple splendor of the distant coasts. She listened in silence. Only once, when he spoke of the distant murmur of the open sea. She lifted her head and looked at him. "'What does it say to you?' she asked. "'It speaks of eternity. And to you?' "'It calls me,' she answered simply. "'And then I want to go and meet it. And it hurts me, too. I can't tell how or why. Sometimes it makes me feel as if I were asleep. and wanted to wake and didn't know how.' She turned and looked out over the bay. A dying gleam of sunset broke through a cloud and fell across her hair. For a moment she seemed the spirit of the shore personified, all its mystery, all its uncertainty, all its elusive charm. She has possibilities, thought Reeves. Next day he began his picture. At first he had thought of painting her as the incarnation of a sea-spirit, but decided that her moods were too fitful. So he began to sketch her as waiting, a woman looking out across the bay with a world of hopeless longing in her eyes. The subject suited her well, and the picture grew apace. When he was tired of work, he made her walk around the shore with him, or row up the head of the bay in her own boat. He tried to draw her out, at first with indifferent success. She seemed to be frightened of him. He talked to her of many things, the far outer world whose echoes never reached her, foreign lands where he had travelled, famous men and women whom he had met, music, art, and books. When he spoke of books he touched the right chord. One of those transfiguring flashes he delighted to evoke now passed over her plain face. "'That is what I've always wanted,' she said hungrily, "'and I never get them. Aunt hates to see me reading. She says it is a waste of time, and I love it so.' I read every scrap of paper I can get hold of, but I hardly ever see a book. The next day, Reeves took his tennyson to the shore, and began to read The Idols of the King to her. It is beautiful, was her sole verbal comment, but her rapt eyes said everything. After that, he never went out with her without a book. Now one of the poets, now some prose classic. He was surprised by her quick appreciation of, and sympathy, with the finest passages. Gradually, too, she forgot her shyness and began to talk. She knew nothing of his world, but her own world she knew, and knew well. She was a mine of traditional history about the bay. She knew the rocky coast by heart, and every old legend that clung to it. They drifted into making excursions along the shore, and explored its wildest retreats, The girl had an artist's eye for scenery and color effect. You should have been an artist, Reeves told her one day, when she had pointed out to him the exquisite loveliness of a shaft of light falling through a cleft in the rocks, across a dark green pool at their base. I would rather be a writer, she said slowly. If I could only write something like those books you have read to me, What a glorious destiny it must be to have something to say that the whole world is listening for, and to be able to say it in words that will live forever. It must be the noblest human lot. Yet some of those men and women were neither good nor noble, said Reeves gently, and many of them were unhappy. Helen dismissed the subject as abruptly as she always did when the conversation touched too nearly on the sensitive edge of her soul-dreams. "'Do you know where I'm taking you today?' she said. "'No. Where?' "'To what the people here call the Kelpie's Cave. "'I hate to go there. "'I believe there's something uncanny about it, "'but I think you will like to see it. "'It's a dark little cave in the curve of a small cove, "'and on each side the headlands of rock run far out. "'At low tide we can walk right round, "'but when the tide comes in it fills the Kelpie's Cave.' If you were there and let the tide come past the points, you would be drowned, unless you could swim, for the rocks are so steep and high it is impossible to climb them. Reeves was interested. Was anyone ever caught by the tide? Yes, returned Helen with a shudder. Once, long ago, before I was born, a girl went around the shore to the cave and fell asleep there, and the tide came in, and she was drowned. She was young and very pretty— and was to have been married the next week. I've been afraid of the place ever since. The treacherous cave proved to be a picturesque and innocent-looking spot, with the beach of glittering sand before it and the high gloomy walls of rock on either hand. I must come here some day and sketch it, said Reeves enthusiastically, and you must be the Kelpie, Helen, and sit in the cave with your hair wrapped about you and seaweed clinging to it. Do you think a Kelpie would look like that? "'said the girl dreamily. "'I don't. "'I think it is a wild, wicked little sea imp, "'malicious and mocking, cruel, "'and it sits here and watches for victims.' "'Well, never mind your sea kelpies,' "'Reeves said, fishing out his longfellow. "'They are a tricky folk, if all tales be true, "'and it is supposed to be a very rash thing "'to talk about them in their own haunts. "'I want to read you the building of the ship. "'You will like it, I'm sure.' when the tide turned, they went home. "'We haven't seen the Kelpie, after all,' said Reeves. "'I think I shall see him some day,' said Helen gravely. "'I think he's waiting for me there in that gloomy cave of his, and some time or other he will get me.' Reeves smiled at the gloomy fancy, and Helen smiled back at him with one of her sudden radiances. The tide was creeping swiftly up over the white sands, The sun was low, and the bay was swimming in a pale blue glory. They parted at Clam Point. Helen to go for the cows, and Reeves to wander on up the shore. He thought of Helen at first, and the wonderful change that had come over her of late. Then he began to think of another face, a marvellously lovely one, with blue eyes as tender as the waters before him. Then Helen was forgotten. The summer waned swiftly. One afternoon Reeves took a fancy to revisit the Kelpie's cave. "'Helen could not go. It was harvest time, and she was needed in the field. "'Don't let the Kelpie catch you,' she said to him, half seriously. "'The tide will turn early this afternoon, and you are given to daydreaming.' "'I'll be careful,' he promised laughingly, and he meant to be careful. But somehow, when he reached the cave, its unwholesome charm overcame him, and he sat down on the boulder at its mouth. "'An hour yet before tide time,' he said.' Just enough time to read that article on Impressionists in my review, and then stroll home by the sand shore. From reading he passed to daydreaming, and daydreaming drifted into sleep, with his head pillowed on the rocky walls of the cave. How long he had slept he did not know, but he woke with a start of horror. He sprang to his feet, realizing his position instantly. The tide was in, far in past the headlands already. Above and beyond him towered the pitiless, unscalable rocks. There was no way of escape. Reeves was no coward, but life was sweet to him, and to die like that, like a drowned rat in a hole, to be able to do nothing but wait for that swift and sure oncoming death. He reeled against the damp rock wall, and for a moment sea and sky and prisoning headlands and white-lined tide whirled before his eyes then his head grew clearer. He tried to think. How long had he? Not more than twenty minutes at the outside. Well, death was sure, and he would meet it bravely. But to wait, to wait helplessly, he should go mad with the horror of it before those endless minutes would have passed. He took something from his pocket and bent his head over it, pressing his lips to it repeatedly. And then, when he raised his face again, A dory was coming around the headland on his right, and Helen Fraser was in it. Reeves was dizzy again with a shock of joy and thankfulness. He ran down over the little stretch of sand, still uncovered by the tide, and around to the rocks of the headlands against which the dory was already grating. He sprang forward impulsively and caught the girl's cold hands in his as she dropped the oars and stood up. "'Helen, you've saved me! How can I ever thank you? I—' He broke off abruptly, for she was looking up at him, breathlessly and voicelessly, with her whole soul in her eyes. He saw in them a revelation that amazed him. He dropped her hands and stepped back as if she had struck him in the face. Helen did not notice the change in him. She clasped her hands together, and her voice trembled. Oh, I was afraid I should be too late. When I came in from the field, Aunt Hannah said you had not come back. And I knew it was tide time, and I felt somehow that it had caught you in the cave. I ran down over the marsh and took Joe Simmons' dory. If I had not got here in time, she broke off shiveringly. Reeves stepped into the dory and took up the oars. The Kelpie would have been sure of its victim then he said, trying to speak lightly, It would have almost served me right for neglecting your warning. I was very careless. You must let me row back. I'm afraid you've overtasked your strength trying to cheat the Kelpie. Reeves rode homeward in absolute silence. Helen did not speak, and he could not. When they reached the dory anchorage, he helped her out. I think I'll go out to the point for a walk, he said. I want to steady my nerves. You must go right home and rest. Don't be anxious. I won't take any more chances with sea Kelpies. Helen went away without a word and reeves walked slowly out to the point he was grieved beyond measure at the discovery he believed he had made he had never dreamed of such a thing he was not a vain man and was utterly free from all tendency to flirtation it had never occurred to him that the waking of the girl's deep nature might be attended with disastrous consequences he had honestly meant to help her and what had he done he felt very uncomfortable He could not conscientiously blame himself, but he saw that he had acted foolishly. And of course he must go away at once, and he must also tell her something she ought to know. He wished he had told her long ago. The following afternoon was a perfect one. Reeves was sketching on the sand shore when Helen came. She sat down on a camp-stool a little to one side, and did not speak. After a few moments Reeves pushed away his paraphernalia impatiently. "'I don't feel in a mood for work,' he said. "'It is too dreamy a day. "'One ought to do nothing to be in keeping. "'Besides, I'm getting lazy now that my vacation is nearly over. "'I must go in a few days.' "'He avoided looking at her, "'so he did not see the sudden pallor of her face. "'So soon?' she said in a voice expressive of no particular feeling. "'Yes, I ought not to have lingered so long.' my world will be forgetting me, and that will not do. It has been a very pleasant summer, and I shall be sorry to leave Bay Beach. But you will come back next summer, asked Helen quickly. You said you would. Reeves nerved himself for his very distasteful task. Perhaps, he said, with an attempt at carelessness, but if I do so, I shall not come alone. Somebody who is very dear to me will come with me, as my wife. I have never told you about her, Helen, but you and I are such good friends that I do not mind doing so now. I am engaged to a very sweet girl, and we expect to be married next spring. There was a brief silence. Reeves had been vaguely afraid of a scene, and was immensely relieved to find his fear unrealized. Helen sat very still. He could not see her face. Did she care after all? was he mistaken? When she spoke, her voice was perfectly calm. Thank you. It is very kind of you to tell me about her. I suppose she is very beautiful. Yes, here is her picture. You can judge for yourself. Helen took the portrait from his hand and looked at it steadily. It was a miniature painted on ivory, and the face looking out from it was certainly lovely. It is no wonder you love her, "'said the girl in a low tone as she handed it back. "'It must be strange to be so beautiful as that. "'Reeves picked up his tennyson. "'Shall I read you something? "'What will you have?' "'Read Elaine, please. "'I want to hear that once more.' "'Reeves felt a sudden dislike to her choice. "'Wouldn't you prefer something else?' "'he asked, hurriedly turning over the leaves. "'Elaine is rather sad.' "'Shan't I read Guinevere instead?' "'No,' said Helen in the same lifeless tone. "'I have no sympathy for Guinevere. "'She suffered, and her love was unlawful. "'But she was loved in return. "'She did not waste her love on someone "'who did not want or care for it. "'Elaine did, and her life went with it. "'Read me the story.' "'Reeves obeyed. "'When he had finished, he held the book out to her. "'Helen,' Will you take this Tennyson from me, in remembrance of our friendship, and of the Kelpie's cave? I shall never forget that I owe my life to you. Thank you. She took the book and placed a little thread of crimson seaweed that had been caught in the sand between the pages of Elaine. Then she rose. I must go back now. Aunt will need me. Thank you again for the book, Mr. Reeves, and for all your kindness to me. Reeves was relieved when the interview was over. Her calmness had reassured him. She did not care very much, after all. It was only a passing fancy, and when he was gone she would soon forget him. He went away a few days later, and Helen bade him an impassive good-bye. When the afternoon was far spent, she stole away from the house to the shore, with her Tennyson in her hand, and took her way to the Kelpie's cave. The tide was just beginning to come in, she sat down on the big boulder where Reeves had fallen asleep. Beyond stretched the gleaming blue waters, mellowing into a hundred fairy shades horizonward. The shadows of the rocks were around her. In front was the white line of the incoming tide. It had almost reached the headlands. A few minutes more an escape would be cut off. Yet she did not move. When the dark green water reached her, and the lapping wavelets swished up over the hem of her dress, she lifted her head and a sudden strange smile flashed over her face. Perhaps the Kelpie understood it. End of the waking of Helen. Recording by Jadope. www.publicdomainaudiobooks.blogspot.com domain